Hi, and welcome to this installment of our New Books in the Arts and Sciences panel podcast, sponsored by Columbia University's Dean of Humanities and School of Arts and Sciences and the Heyman Center for the Humanities and the Society of Fellows. I'm Anne Levitsky. Today's podcast celebrates Professor of Slavic Languages Irina Raifman's book, How Russia Learned to Write, Literature in the Imperial Table of Ranks. This podcast is accompanied by a sister podcast, which focuses on Liza Knapp's book, Anna Karenina and Others, Tolstoy's Labyrinth of Plots. First, I'll bring you Irina's words from the panel, where she begins by discussing the production of literature by Russian nobility in the mid-18th to mid-19th centuries. Um, since um, my colleague, my chair, has thanked uh, uh, the organizers and I joined her thanks, I will uh, just uh, uh, thank uh, uh, um, uh, my discussants, um, um, Bill Todd and uh, Richard Wartman, and I look forward to their comments. Um, um, uh, Bill is the pioneer in paying attention to the questions I address in my book, and I have been always looking up to him. Um, and Richard is the scholar of history and humanities in general, whose opinion and judgment I deeply respect. I am also grateful to Liza, whose book is beyond praise and whose presence here makes the whole affair so much more exciting. And I look forward to uh, uh, Robin's and Eileen's discussion of her book. Finally, I thank everyone who has come to this event. I greatly appreciate having uh, you all here. So, now to my book. Uh, For about 100 years, between the mid-18th and mid-19th centuries, the main producers of literature in Russia were members of the nobility. Such dominance of the literary sphere by the upper class appears to be rare in early modern Europe. Uh, where nobles appreciated good writing skills, used writing as a self-fashioning tool, but rarely made it their principal occupation. An additional difference is that, unlike in Europe, in Russia, the nobles writing, uh, in, in Russia, the nobles' writing competed with their state service obligations. The term Uh, The terms state service and nobility are fraught with complexity. Students of the Russian imperial period face a difficulty when choosing the appropriate term for the group known as, in Russian, as dvarianstvo. Even in Russian, the term competes with other um, uh, designations, like aristocratia, aristocracy, znats, notables, and more recently, elita, or elity. Uh, This uh, reflects an uncertainty about the composition of the group. For all practical purposes, the upper class that Peter created was a new one. It incorporated members of all kinds of Moscovite elite groups and also commoners who entered the noble class thanks to state service or imperial favor. The boundaries of the group... um, mm, particularly early in the century, were uncertain and shifting. As Mark Reif points out in his seminal study of the 18th century Russian nobility, origins of the Russian intelligentsia, one thing that this group had, I I quote, had in common 
uh, in which, um, and which had no equivalent in the West was that they held a speci specified rank in the table of ranks, end of quote. The table of ranks, a list of position in the military, civil, and court services introduced by Peter, was a powerful means of forging a new class of servitors that replaced the Muscovite elite. Uh, it also reconfirmed very, every nobleman's obligations to serve, to serve the emperor and the state. Service was to begin at age 15 and continue indefinitely. The rule was gradually relaxed in the course of the century, and in 1762, Peter III abolished compulsory service for nobles. Some nobles retired at this point, but others remained in service, which continued to define a noble, nobleman's place in society for at least another century and for many beyond. My book appraises this unique situation and considers how compulsory and or after 1762 strongly expected service affected Russian writers of noble status, both in their identity as noblemen and in their self-images as, um, uh, um, as writers. I also examine how the complexities of the service hierarchy were reflected in their literary production. Finally, I assess how the coexistence of service and writing in the lives of Russian nobles affected the status of literature in Russia. The 18th century nobility's active participation in the production of literature was a new phenomenon. During both the Kievan and Muscovite periods, writers from the upper secular classes were few and far between. In the 17th century, the main producers of literature were state bureaucrats and the clergy. The state bureaucrats, the oldest secularly educated group in Russia, were the first producers of modern literature. They were the first to write secular poetry, the first to translate and generate native examples of secular prose, including fiction. The clergy, the dominant literati of the medieval period, also began transitioning to modern uh, literary forms, particularly poetry and drama. In the 18th century, um, an ability came to dominate the literary field in competi competition with these two groups. To compete successfully in the literary sphere, Russian nobles first had to be educated. As Lindsay Hughes, uh, Hughes uh, points out in her Russia in the Age of Peter the Great, few among the pre-Petrine nobility, I quote, educated their sons beyond basic literacy, if that, end of quote. One important goal of the Petrine reforms was to promote the education of the nobility. And despite resistance of the, on the nobles' part, Peter's educational initiatives eventually bore fruit. Gradually, the ability to write well became a necessary skill for a Russian nobleman. Like their European counterparts, Russian nobles turned to writing in search of modern modes of existence. Beginning with Peter's reign, we see the steady growth in diary and memoir writing. Work in literary genres followed. Like in Europe, individuation was their goal, and it may have been even more important for Russians 
since some of Peter's new policies limited nobles' freedoms in many areas of their lives. Challenge, challenged by changes in the idea of what makes a nobleman, Russian nobles used writing to shape their public and private identities. The swiftness with which the Russian nobility appropriated the literary field is the more remarkable that it, um, that it happened under the patronage system that prevailed in Russia in the 18th century. For a nobleman seeking patronage sorry, from a fellow nobleman could be awkward, and writers of noble status used different strategies in dealing with the problem. Some participated in the system, some ignored it, some actively resisted it. The nascent market system was another factor that complicated the situation for noblemen. Many were reluctant to participate directly in the sale of the fruits of their literary labors. Both factors, the patronage system and the specter of the commercialization of literature, produced ambivalence about writing. Therefore, some nobles preferred to publish anonymously or not at all. Others, however, not only wrote and published, but did, but did not back away from acknowledging writing as their principal occupation. At the same time, as I have already pointed out, the post Russia, write, uh, in post-Petrine Russia, writing was not the only or even the main tool of self-fashioning for novels. Service to the state was a surer means of establishing and maintaining one's noble status. The table of ranks defined, defined the nobility as a service class, offering tangible evidence of career advancement. It also introduced a new hierarchy, that of rank, within the noble class. The table of ranks clearly determined Russian nobleman's, uh, a, a Russian nobleman's status vis-a-vis -vis his counterparts. Being a writer brought additional layers of complexity to the situation of a nobleman in service. In my book, I attempt to, uh, to address some of the problems that these complexities generated. I investigate whether service had any impact on noble status as writers, and conversely, whether they being writers complicated their position in the service hierarchy. I examined whether rank was important for those who considered writing their primary occupation. Was, for example, Pushkin's failure to thrive in his service career relevant to him and his contemporaries? The other set of questions has to do with the representation of service ranks in literature. Since state service was so important in the lives of the nobility, beginning with the early 19th century, it found its way into their writing. I tried to assess what we, unversed in the significance of the various ranks, barely remembering their relative value, unsure about the status of different types of service. What do we miss when, reading, when we read Russian literature of the imperial period? Was the rank of titular counselor as low as Gogol would have us believe. <laughs> if not, what was Gogol after in trying to convince us that it was? What does Pushkin mean when, in his story, The Station Master, he claims that narrative ability is inversely proportional to rank? 
Uh, finally, the question arises whether Russian nobles' simultaneous participation in state service and literary production had implications for the status of literature in Russia. I argue that it in interfered with their becoming fully professional writers, that is, writers who supported themselves by writing. Like Steva Oblonsky in Anna Karenina, <laughs> they were reluctant to ab abandon service, even when after they acquired the legal right to do so and could have taken up full-time gainful literary work. This lateness, I contend, resulted in the elevated prestige of literature in Russia. High-minded and ostensibly financially disinterested, writers of noble status remained unpolluted by association with their supposedly greedy and unscrupulous market-oriented contemporaries. As often happens, at least to me, after publishing a book, I continue to find material that would enhance my book if discovered in time. <laughs> I do get frustrated when it happens, but then I think, okay, if there are more examples that fit my proposed model, perhaps I have done something right. <laughs> I hope I'm not too much mistaken. Thank you for your attention. William Todd, Harry Tuchman Levin Professor of Literature and Professor of Comparative Literature at Harvard, responded to Irina's book. He begins by situating Irina's works within the field alongside his own development as a scholar of Slavic literature. Thank you very much. I'm um, thrilled to be here. It's an always a pleasure to return to my graduate alma mater uh, to see so many old friends. Um, let me begin with a uh, moment of personal ethnography. Um, I started reading 19th century Russian literature in high school and was hooked for life. The characters, most of them only a little older than I was, were compelling, as were the big ideas they discussed. These novels challenged the modern secular world with a freshness and profundity that made them seem immediately accessible. <laughs> At the same time, much about them seemed strange and inconceivable. Peasants drinking pails of vodka and sleeping it off on stoves. Unpronounceable <laughs> names with multiple variations. References to unknown literary figures. Flora and fauna that a suburban New Jersey kid had never encountered. More mysterious and important seemed those social patterns that sparked the plots of the novels. Bringing characters together, creating and discharging tensions, framing the space in which confrontations occurred. An unknown dance called the mazurka, duels that never seemed to unfold according to the rules, an official sphere in which servitors seemed to derive their very identity and their place on a mysterious table of ranks. Liza Knapp and Irina Reifman, whose new books we're celebrating today, have devoted distinguished careers to making these magnificent novels both more clear and more profound for Anglophone readers. Liza with her books on Dostoevsky and Tolstoy, and Irina with hers on a variety of topics which help us see the historical human reality that provided, as she puts it about Gogol in her new book, the themes and structural principles 
for the fictions that have proven to hold enduring fascination for their readers, Russian and non-Russian alike. With wit and precision, her first book, Vasily Tretikovsky, The Fool of the New Russian Literature, taught us to understand the prevalent ridicule of this pioneering poet, especially in the Pushkin period, the early 19th century. Her second book, Ritualized Violence, Russian Style, The Duel in Russian Culture, Literature, explored a different set of mythologies, as it taught us, better than any other stu study of the duel in any language, to understand the function of this aspect of noble culture in life and literature. I've repeated the phrase, taught us, deliberately, to emphasize the accessibility of this scholarship and its influence, also the range of readers who can learn from it, not just undergraduates or graduate students, but grizzled specialists in imperial Russian culture. The same is true of the many articles she's published in recent years on literature and state service, articles gathered in her rank and style book of five years ago, articles which have been much reworked for the book we're celebrating today. For those of us who may have thought that a mere list of ranks with parallel columns indicating civil, military, and court rank suffice to understand the complexities of the system, Irina's book offers multi-layered insights. I'd like to list a few of the book's particular strengths, then go into more detail its treatment of two of her writers. The first of these particular strengths would be, as with her earlier books, its strong and detailed treatment of 18th century writers and situations. I'm persuaded, once again, that for the writers of the 19th century, the previous century was a living backdrop, one which set the patterns which would reverberate for decades afterward. The nexus of service, nobility, and literacy established in the 18th century had important consequences for Russian literature as an institution. I'll offer the same summary here uh, that Dick did, and I think that's indicative of the clarity of the book, that people from different disciplines would find the same things uh, salient and intriguing. Important consequences. Among them, the delayed rise of professionalized and commercialized literature vis-a-vis -vis England or France, together with the high prestige accorded high-minded writers who do not seek profit by entertaining their readers. Irina provides telling examples of writers whose state service interfered with or relegated their writing to a private pastime. As her analysis of Russia's writing state servitors moves into the 19th century, Irina gives examples in life and literary works of how the system of ranks was not so clear-cut as the ranks suggest. Um, especially in awarding prestige. Some branches of the civil service and some military units were more prestigious than others. Thresholds for hereditary nobility shifted, as Afanasy Fiat's biography poignantly illustrates. <coughs> Salaries for a rank were not uniform across the branches of service, as we learn from the biographies of Pushkin and Gogol. Having a rank did not guarantee one a position, as we learn from the biography of Gogol and from the fictional situation of Gogol's major Kovalyov in the nose. Mm -hmm. 
a character who illustrates the insecurity and subterfuges that could attend existence in the lower and middling ranks of the civil service. Nor did having a rank in itself guarantee social prestige and status. Rather, as the book often shows, type of service, level of education, family status, and social position created what Irina calls heterogeneity within the noble class. Some titular counselors were more equal than others. <laughs> a number of prominent Russian novelists and poets figure in the later chapters of her book, but I'll focus on two of its central author protagonists, Pushkin and Gogol, the discussion of whom offers fresh insight into their work. Turning to Pushkin, Irina discusses at length the national poet's two less than glorious periods of civil service during which he never surpassed the ninth rank, that of titular counselor. She also analyzes Pushkin's appointment to the court rank of Kamaryunkar, which the poet found insulting, in part because his older poet friends held the higher rank of Kamarher. She offers many commonsensical points on both his service and court ranks, especially on the first, which Pushkinisti including the unnamed author of the Pushkin entry in the Terrace Handbook of Russian Literature, have ignored. She makes a strong case against this taboo, showing how other writers, such as Sinkovsky and Gogol, poked fun at Pushkin's low status and lofty pretensions. Most notably, Gogol's case, with the character Poprishin, Diary of a Madman. She goes on to show how many of Pushkin's works, especially in his prose of the 1830s, are shaped by anxieties and confrontations over rank and status. This is certainly eye-opening, and rank consciousness needs to be placed alongside Pushkin's other concerns, uh, no, less, um, no less serious, such as his anxiety about the decline of the Tvaryanstva, the nobility, its decline in wealth, primarily uh, or partly from the loss of primogeniture. These concerns also find expression in the prose, fictional and non-fictional, of the 1830s. For example, in The Captain's Daughter, and in the note to Nicholas I, appended to the emperor's copy, The History of Pugachev. Irina's contribution to our increased understanding of Gogol is no less striking than its section on Pushkin. As she does with Pushkin, Irina looks at Gogol's biography and fiction, paying particular attention to his misrepresentations of his own service career, approximately a year and a half in length, and his inaccurate treatment of the ranks of his fictional characters. It is a venerable tradition in Gogol studies, at least a century old, and part of a reaction against the 19th century treatment of Gogol as a realist to show that Gogol didn't know anything about anything. Vingerov <laughs> famously declared in an article of this title that Gogol absolutely did not know real Russian life, showing that Gogol had spent only 50 days in the Russian countryside before publishing Dead Souls, and most of those days in carriages in transit. Vingerov <laughs> did concede that Gogol 
did not know did know something about Ukraine and about St. Petersburg. A few years later, Vasily Gipia showed that Gogol really didn't know much about Ukraine either, although at least he knew whom his mother should ask for information on his behalf. Now, Irina completes Gogol's negative hat trick by showing that Gogol didn't know much about Petersburg civil service either. <laughs> the Petersburg stories are full of inaccuracies. The nose is wearing plumage to which it is not entitled. <laughs> Akaki Akakievich's famous ninth rank is much too high for someone of his mere copying duties. Poprishin's duties as a desk chief are too high for his rank, which is the same as Akaki's. Now, a traditional philologist would have stopped here. But Irina goes on to invoke Jean Baudrillard's category of the hyper-real, which discourages the reader from questioning such inaccuracies. And she does this to help explain the power of Gogol's representations. For better or worse, Gogol taught his readers, she shows, how to view the bureaucracy, and especially that ninth rank. Partly, no doubt, uh, because he shaped, he shaped these responses because of the artistic genius he brought to his work. But partly, perhaps, because there was enough of the absurd and the grotesque in Russians' experience of the system to lend at least a small measure of verisimilitude to Gogol's imaginings. Irina's ability to interweave sensitive biography with historical understanding and literary insights makes this book essential reading for anyone seriously interested in Russian literature of the imperial period. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast celebrating Irina Raifman's How Russia Learned to Write, Literature in the Imperial Table of Ranks. I hope you'll listen to this podcast's sister podcast featuring Liza Knapp's book Anna Karenina and Others, Tolstoy's Labyrinth of Plots. And I hope you'll join us next time when we discuss Philip Kitcher and Evelyn Fox Keller's book, The Season's Altar, How to Save Our Planet in Six Acts. From Columbia University's Heyman Center for the Humanities, I'm Anne Levitsky.